Hi, everyone. This is Chris Lim with the Theotech Podcast. Today, you're going to hear about a second reformation, a talk I delivered at a gathering for faith and work integration called Kairos. We plan on expanding on its themes and ideas on our website, theotech.org. So be sure to subscribe to get those email updates. Let's dive right into the opening prayer. Father God, thank you so much for your Holy Spirit who has brought us together in this place this morning. And thank you for every person in this room uh, who has come longing to hear from you. And so that's what I pray for, that your words would be spoken through me, that it would give grace to those who hear, and that your spirit would fill us so that we can do the good works you prepared in advance for us to do. Bless our time, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, we're discussing the possibility of a second reformation. What it would look like, why now, and what its impact could be and what that means for you and for me. But before we begin, let's consider what happened at the first Reformation. If you're not familiar with the origin story, it goes a bit like this. In 1515, Pope Leo X needed money to build St. Peter's Basilica. He had a revenue stream through the sale of indulgences, which were said to absolve people from sin in exchange for money, regardless of contrition. And Johannes Tetzel, a Dominican preacher, was commissioned, a salesperson, to sell these indulgences in the region of Bishop Albrecht. He was an effective growth hacker, inventing catchy slogans like, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs, <laughs> that soon reached the ears of Martin Luther in the neighboring region of Frederick the Wise. In 1517, disturbed by the sketchy theological basis for indulgences and by the manipulative religious extortion happening at the expense of his people, Luther posted his 95 Theses, written in Latin, to start a scholarly debate. But this soon spun out of control into what we of the internet age might call a flame war. And why did it go viral? It, unbeknownst to Luther, someone translated the 95 Theses from Latin into German, the language of the people. And Gutenberg's printing press, which was invented about 77 years earlier, was already widely in use printing books for the wealthy. But Luther's 95 Theses was a major breakout hit that demonstrated the scale of its disruptive potential. Within two weeks, pamphlets of Luther's writing had spread throughout all of Germany. Other reformers from other regions also joined the debate, and they started new threads surrounding the authority of the Pope, the scriptures, the nature of salvation, and much more. But the floodgates were opened. Society was upended, and there was no going back. Five years after the 95 Theses were posted, Luther published a popular vernacular German translation of the New Testament, and he completed the whole Bible 12 years later. His translation was unique for its basis in the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts and the high-quality German that commoners could understand. And the result, it was an explosion in biblical literacy among ordinary German-speaking peoples and a unification of the language. It busted the privilege of the religious elite. It gave the movement legs, which leaders would later parlay into greater freedom. Different reform movements allied to secure religious freedom. And in 1526, an initial imperial parliament gave each government within the Holy Roman Empire permission to decide which religion it wished to follow. But three years later, this freedom was rescinded, and Lutheran teaching was condemned, resulting in an April 20th letter of protestation by the German princes and delegates of the free imperial cities. And incidentally, this letter received legal status as a formal complaint on April 25th, today, 490 years ago. And that is where the word Protestant in the Protestant Reformation comes from. So we're celebrating the anniversary, kind of, of 
Protestantism today. And if you're Catholic, you're welcome here too. I don't think I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna say something that's gonna be offensive to you, I don't think. So we come to today, right? History is messy, but I want to draw out a few observations from the First Reformation to get hints for what a Second Reformation might look like. My first observation is that the Reformation was initially about correcting an injustice in the church. The church was corrupted, and having monopolized salvation in the scriptures, it ended up selling the forgiveness of sins to enrich its hierarchy. The second observation is that the Reformation was effective because of translation and technology, which rapidly reached and connected diverse people into a greater movement. Without the translation of the 95 Thesis into German and the printing press to affordably put these pamphlets in the hands of every person, no movement would have formed, and the status quo along with its injustice would have prevailed. And the third observation is that this movement was enabled by innovations in the arts and humanities, and it resulted in the prolific creation of new artifacts and institutions to carry it forward. So beyond the numerous pamphlets, songs, cartoons, sermons, and other creative works generated by the Reformation, Luther's Bible does stand out as the powerful artifact that reshaped all of Europe. It was made possible by the Christian humanist scholar Erasmus, who published the Bible manuscripts in the original language, and it resulted in that unified German language, as well as a pluralistic polity, with the freedom of religion and the freedom um, to decide what you want to follow in each region. But perhaps another big outcome from all of this was the emergence of vocational integration. Every person in every discipline had a contribution to make for the glory of God, and the sacred-secular divide was broken, at least for a season. So, what might these observations mean for a Second Reformation in our day? Let's begin by talking about injustices we see in the church, at least in America, today. Yes, there's everything from abusive leadership, sex scandals, plagiarism, embezzlement. Jesus said that there would be wolves in sheepskins who would not spare the flock. But let's also talk systemically. Institutional churches, the Christian market, the nonprofit industrial complex. What injustices do you see? This can be, anybody can call stuff out. I'll share mine. Is it a weird question? Well, it's like, tell me stories about your family. You know? Yeah. <laughs> the multiple versions of the Bible? Well, it's a challenge. Translation's a very difficult art. There is an injustice in the sense that English has probably like 50 translations of the Bible at least, but there's a lot of languages that don't have anything. That's kind of a, a problem, Bible poverty. Yeah. Mm. In areas like the prosperity gospel. Exploitation of the poor. Pastors, I don't know if you've seen pastors in sneakers. Yeah. Um, they're wearing thousand dollar sneakers as they ask for money to support the church. Yeah. Okay, these are all good thoughts. I'll continue with my line of thinking. I'll share one injustice that I've seen that uh, I want to highlight. And bear with me. I'm going to speak boldly, but generally, and I'm not referring to any church in particular but I generally don't like to speak in a polemic, but I'm going to a little bit today, all right? So I think the injustice, one of them in our day, uh, in the church, it may have less to do with the use of money, which is still there, um, but in the use of time. Churches waste people's time, and by extension, they devalue their labor. So the sacred-secular divide enables church institutions to claim greater significance for the activities, the needs of the church, which justifies extensive unpaid labor and time. 
Instead of activating and unleashing people to use their most valuable gifts to build up the body and bless the world, churches pull people into church activities to, church, to serve the church community in cookie cutter roles. And not only are people expected to volunteer, much of their efforts are maybe even ineffective at producing change, which is at the heart of meaningful labor. When you work, you never want to work in vain. That's what makes people quit their jobs. And when you volunteer at church and go through the motions to very little effect, we end up trying to resolve that cognitive dissonance, maybe by attributing it to a different spiritual economy or a different spiritual causality. But in actuality, a lot of the action is just keeping us busy, distracts people, gives them something to do in order to involve them in the church itself. That's an injustice. So instead of selling indulgences, churches try to be value-added resellers of meaning, purpose, and relationship by claiming eternal significance when you participate in the activities and work of the church. But deep down, I think many people can tell it's grasping at straws. They can seek their need for meaning and connection elsewhere. Strangely enough, this error flows from a misunderstanding of salvation. It flows from a truncated gospel. When you hear the word salvation, what do you think of? I'm going to postulate that for the majority of Americans, it might mean something like a personal relationship with Jesus that ensures you go to heaven when you die because your sins are forgiven by believing he died for you and rose again from the dead. But that's not the gospel. At least it is incomplete. What's missing? When Jesus began his ministry, he preached, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When Peter preached at Pentecost, he said, believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. And when Paul spoke about what happens when we die, he said, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. The gospel was that God's cosmic purpose to unite heaven and earth in Jesus Christ through the church is being fulfilled. Jesus, through his death on the cross, not only bore our sins, but also became the seed for the new creation, which would be given as an inheritance to everyone in him. The apostles bore witness to his resurrection, inviting all people to repent and believe in him so that they would become a redeemed new humanity that would inherit and rule this new creation with Christ. In the present time, every believer receives the Holy Spirit as a down payment in advance of this promise. So the hope of the gospel wasn't to go to heaven when you die. It was always a new creation ruled by a new humanity redeemed by Jesus Christ, also known as the kingdom of God. Do you see the difference? When salvation is understood merely as forgiveness now and eternal life when you die, all work unrelated to these two things are demoted in significance. But when salvation is understood as God making all things new in Jesus Christ and giving it to redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to rule, all work done in Jesus' name is significant and all people in Jesus Christ are indispensable. Making disciples is no longer about making converts to our way of life. It's getting people ready for the new creation through the good works that God has prepared for them to do today. It is, in a sense, vocational integration. So if the First Reformation broke the institutional church's unjust monopoly on salvation and scripture by making God's word available to people in their own language, perhaps 
a second reformation will break the monopoly on what it means to serve God, on sacred labor, by unleashing God's people in every vocation to be productive for God's kingdom throughout the world. So what I'm saying is not new. Vocational integration has been a movement for some time. What makes our present time ripe for a second reformation? I want to suggest at least these three things. Technology, politics, and translation. The first reformation started about 77 years after the invention of the printing press, which enabled mass communication. The political situation was a highly fragmented, restive, Holy Roman Empire. Local rulers saw in the Reformation an opportunity to press for greater freedom and oppose the hegemony of the empire. And translation is what lit the fuse of Luther's 95 Theses by pushing it out of academia and into the international political scene. It brought together diverse people from many nations into a continental movement that disrupted all of Europe. Today, we have the internet, which recently turned 30 years old. It amplifies mass communication to the extreme where everyone has access to overwhelming amounts of information for free and anyone can distribute their own ideas as long as they can get attention and buy Facebook ads. Uh, we also have a highly divided political situation in America which cuts through our churches. It's exacerbated by the ways we've come to use the internet and other countries have taken advantage to undermine the US. Trust in general feels scarce and advances in AI and automatic translation mean we're approaching human quality automatic translation for many major languages like English, Spanish, and all the European ones. This is driving down the cost and speed of translation and it enables diverse people to connect and collaborate internationally in unprecedented ways. So something disruptive is coming. What it is, I, I can't see clearly yet. But what I want to share is, what does this mean for reforming the church? So here are three ideas for what it could mean for reforming the church. The first is, our gatherings must shift from being a product to be consumed to a platform for productive vocational integration. So this would require a change in the pastoral role. It turns to denominations from being clergy-oriented to focus on equipping and unleashing the saints. And it also makes church gatherings lightweight. The second, technology must be used for large-scale, ongoing interaction and collaboration, rather than just mass content distribution and consumption. So collaboration rather than just consumption. And this goes probably even beyond off-the-shelf tools like Slack or WhatsApp. It's going to require churches to become innovative, early adopters of technology, and creators, not just consumers. Third, church communities must embrace the unity and diversity that bears witness to the kingdom of God. This means including and empowering people with disabilities and people who speak many languages because they are indispensable to our witness that Jesus is Lord. So let's dive into each of these ideas in turn. The first idea is a paradigm shift from church as a product to church as a platform. What's the difference? A platform empowers others to build on top of it. A product satisfies a felt need. So for example, Amazon Web Services is a platform that equips startups to build products that meet customer needs like ordering a pizza through an Echo. But platforms like AWS, they have a brand, but customers don't choose to subscribe to Netflix just because Netflix is built on AWS. You see the distinction? The platform's brand is less important. Similarly, the church is a platform. 
that equips saints to produce good works, which satisfy God's desires for them and for the world. God is the customer. The church gathered is not a product that meets the felt needs of those who attend. It's a place of shared discernment and pursuit of God's will. The Apostle Paul frequently used the analogy of a building in reference to the church, where each person gets to build on the foundation of Christ, and each person's work will be tested at the return of Christ. And his description of worship gatherings in 1 Corinthians 14 seems to be an example of one way church services can be a platform for all members of the body to exercise their gifts in an orderly way to build up the body. I'm just going to quote verse 26. Paul said, When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So within that context, it seems as if there's this freedom where different gifts are being exercised freely in order to build up the body of Christ. And there are other ways as, as well, steps to take that move the church from being a product to a platform. Some churches have certain Sundays when people can think through scripture together and benefit from the gifts and perspective of every member of the body. They have a discussion kind of as we're gonna have later today. Some parachurch ministries form vocational integration and discernment groups for people in different industries and spheres of society to practice the implications of the gospel in their work. And some events like hackathons which can be extended to prayathons, preachathons, pitchathons, facilitate in an orderly way the sharing and exercise of every member's gifts, ideas, and contributions to build up the body of Christ. The common thread in these models is that every member of the body of Christ is doing the work of the ministry together with their spirit-given gifts. And this is how the body is built up, according to Paul, Ephesians 4. God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In this picture, our church gatherings and institutions become like a spiritual scaffolding or infrastructure or skeleton, connecting people who are equipped and activated to build up the body of Christ. So that's church from product to platform. But one more aspect of that, is there a new role for pastors in this? Many pastors and lay people that I've spoken with have had this dream for a long time, and many also are burnt out because they're not fulfilling their roles. Pastor teachers are not to do the work of the ministry. It's too much for them. They are to teach and equip the saints. And this goes beyond just preaching a sermon or visiting someone in the hospital. Saints have work to do, and that work happens outside where they gather on Sunday. Pastor teachers must help saints to make their strengths, their work, productive for the kingdom of God. Pastor teachers must equip them to think theologically about their work, to discover how their work bears witness to the gospel of the new creation, and how to be motivated to carry out their work as unto God. Pastor teachers must set an example for saints not to love money or worry about money, but to find their identity in Christ instead of their work, to practice justice, righteousness, and steadfast love, to be a courageous witness and a humble, generous leader, to help people find their place in God's story their role in the body, how they build up the body, and help people to maximize their impact for God's kingdom. 
then the work of the ministry will be effectively accomplished by the body of Christ. Then our churches will be platforms that unleash the gifts of every member to bear fruit for the gospel in every sphere of society. This function is desperately lacking in the institutional church today, but a second reformation might change that. I have heard from so many people that their motive for entering the pastorate was exactly to equip the saints and unleash them for the work of the ministry. But the existing church systems, expectations, and structures made it virtually impossible for them to change the status quo. And this leads us to the next big idea of using technology to bust the status quo. That's what it's good at. So whether the church changes or not, society is being disrupted by technology. The pace of innovation has increased to the point where breakthroughs are happening in years rather than centuries. That makes it very hard to hold on to your traditions and survive. Churches in America may have a Facebook page or a website. More affluent ones may even have an app. They use it to share announcements, accept donations, and post videos. What's wrong with this picture? It's stuck in the age of the printing press. Print was a one-way medium for mass communication. The internet is a two-way medium for mass, group, and private communication. Not only that, it gives us the capacity for real-time feedback. We have the capacity for massive, many-way communication. We can now connect people to one another on a regular basis across the world for free. Think about that. We can connect people to one another all across the world on a regular basis for free. Not only do we have access to feedback loops that we can learn from and adjust to, we can also help people directly engage with one another in order to do the work of the ministry God has called them to do. And we already see evidence of how churches are using, they're transitioning from product to platform using this technology. Around the world, small groups of believers are growing exponentially, and they're remaining connected to one another via group chats in WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, and other apps. By removing the requirement of a physical building for churches, they have these very lightweight networked infrastructure that enables people to gather on demand, collaborate, and act on a fluid basis. They share videos and pictures and texts of what God is doing throughout the day. They're passionate about hearing God's will and obeying together. They share requests for prayer and they pray together in many languages via video conferencing. What could happen if our category of church shifted from that physical gathering place and 501c3 to instead emphasize those relational networks we're connected to in person and through technology? In that sense, even Kairos's church. Would it change when and where we gather? Would it change our liturgies? Would it change our business model? Would it change our expectations for pastors and staff? I think so. I think it could free pastors up to show up at people's places of work, and it could result in flexible times, gathering times, locations, to create space for people who have other kinds of schedules and geographical constraints. It could create a new expectation of personal relationship within the church, uh, between leaders and those who are doing the, the work of the ministry. Just this morning before my talk, my pastors texted me saying they're praying for me while they're traveling. And I've never had a relationship like that before with pastors. It's amazing. And from this kind of change, a new business model oriented around investing in God's kingdom throughout society could emerge rather than giving to grow a church budget. Those are some you know, ideas, sketches, for what could change when we shift to realize that Technology means we really don't have to think about buildings anymore, and we don't have to think about set times and set places anymore. We can be connected to one another throughout the week in whatever vocation God has called us to, discipling one another. There's something there. But this is one of the most important ways I think that technology can disrupt the status quo. Earlier I mentioned 
The first Reformation resulted in prolific creation of new artifacts, institutions. Uh, you have the Luther Bible, you have the early stages of denominationalism, which is where you have that freedom of religion for people. I expect the Second Reformation will result in stuff like that too, like YouTube videos instead of pamphlets, apps instead of books, networks instead of polities. And if the First Reformation resulted in the Word of God being available in every language, which we're still working on, it's not done yet, I think an enduring artifact of the Second Reformation might be the people of God united across many languages. So here's what I mean. As the internet reaches the ends of the earth, the truncated gospel message could theoretically reach the ends of the earth also. Just buy enough Facebook ads so that people get exposed to a gospel presentation in a 15-second spot, right? And then translating that spot into every language will be easier and faster than translating the Bible. And once everyone has a chance to believe, Jesus is going to return. Done. <laughs> but I think we all know that isn't how it works. It turns out that bearing witness to the new creation inaugurated by the resurrection of Jesus requires a community of diverse disciples who love one another as Jesus loved them. In such communities, people experience the power of the gospel, not just the message. Unfortunately, most churches around the world remain segregated by language, race, and culture. Before, there were practical barriers to language diversity, but as technology enables us to bridge that, we're running out of excuses. The Apostle Paul explicitly rebuked Peter for rebuilding the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles as out of step with the gospel. He goes on to teach church integration across weighty cultural differences as the only way we learn to imitate Christ's attitude of self-denial and welcome in Romans 14 and 15. So diversity is a gospel issue. And furthermore, against the backdrop of our rapidly diversifying and polarized society, our message will sound increasingly meaningless unless the language diversity of God's kingdom is reflected in our communities. As the internet commoditizes our messages, the reality of our integrated communities must be the witness that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus makes us one. So, in anticipation of a second reformation, I'd like to ask you to join something my company launched called Project Pentecost. It's a movement of people in churches who want to reflect the diversity of God's kingdom in their gatherings. If you believe God's kingdom is incomplete without the deaf, the blind, and people of many languages, and if you want to do everything in your power to welcome them and unleash the gifts of every member of the body of Christ, then Project Pentecost is for you. In the short term, we're campaigning together to make Pentecost a thing. We want Pentecost celebrations to be as big of a deal as Easter or Christmas. Pentecost is the day Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on the church and opened the gospel to many languages. So what if this Pentecost, tens or hundreds or even thousands of churches, create foretastes of God's kingdom by incorporating other languages in their celebrations? A few ways that Project Pentecost helps with that. One, we're providing a video for free of people from many nations glorifying God in many languages that helps you feel connected to the global body of Christ and catch God's vision for unity and diversity. We're providing a series answering from scripture the hard questions of one, is diversity a gospel issue? Two, what do I do if my church isn't very diverse? And three, how do I deal with culture clash? We're also providing an open licensed worship song that has been translated into multiple languages that you can sing, perform, and translate freely. And after Pentecost, we plan to continue collecting and sharing the learnings and stories of how the Holy Spirit is uniting us across languages, cultures, and abilities into the brilliant diversity of the mature, beautiful Bride of Christ. If God wills, we may one day see a world where every church is accessible in any language, 
and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation glorify God together with one voice, a foretaste of God's kingdom that people can experience today. So you can join the movement at projectpentecost.com, projectpentecost.com. In conclusion, what would a second reformation mean for you and for me? The first of Martin Luther's 95 thesis went like this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And maybe that's where we can start, with repentance. It's true that the sacred secular divide has devalued your work and vocations outside of the institutional church. And the teaching of a truncated gospel may have hindered your fruitfulness for God's kingdom. And all of our churches struggle to welcome people different than us. But instead of feeling bad or angry or acting out of guilt, what if we repented? What if we changed our minds? What if we realized that our work and vocational integration isn't just about us finding purpose, it's about others. And it's not just about people like us, like me and my fellow techies. It's about people from every tribe, tongue and nation, including people with disabilities who are gifted by the Holy Spirit and have an indispensable contribution to make to the kingdom of God. What if we realize that God is using our vocations to fulfill the scriptures? And what if we understood what repentance means for our field, just like John the Baptist specifically explained to soldiers, tax collectors, and others in Luke chapter three? What if our personal ambitions were eclipsed by Jesus's heart's desire? Jesus Christ is returning for a beautiful holy bride consisting of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are made into one new humanity through union with him. She is going to reign in the new creation with him when she finally matures to reach his full stature. She's clothed in bright pure linen, which are the righteous deeds of the saints, those good works which God has prepared in advance for each of us to do in the cosmic project of building up the body of Christ. So as that body, we must work together, equipping, unleashing, activating each other to fulfill God's call so we'll be complete and ready for the new creation at Christ's return. Let's get to work. Soli Deo Gloria. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this talk on A Second Reformation. Before you go, I also want to remind you to sign up for Project Pentecost at projectpentecost.com. If you would like to help churches and individuals reflect the diversity of God's kingdom in their weekly gatherings, Project Pentecost is for you. And with that, until next time.